This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the daily increases in COVID-19 cases are starting to look a bit less like a spike and maybe more like a new reality. Only time will tell. The governor says don't blame that increase on the way we're reopening Florida for business. He says it's the result of more testing. Many of the new cases are being discovered in migrant worker communities, prisons, and old-age homes. The rising number of COVID cases has not dampened Ron DeSantis' enthusiasm for the Republican convention coming to Jacksonville in August. And without a trace of irony, he says recent police brutality protests have shown people can gather in large crowds without creating new outbreaks. Wouldn't it be a hoot if it turns out tear gas kills coronavirus? There's a new law in Florida that says college athletes can make money off their own names, images, and likenesses. The governor says it's all about fairness, but he's hoping this will help lure blue-chip athletes from other states and keep the homegrown talent at home. Today on the Sunrise Soapbox, you'll hear from Florida Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, who says during these days of unrest and upheaval, this would be a good time for white people to listen. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with the Florida man whose arrest report reads something more like a video game. Plus, we'll also have the story of a Florida man and woman who square off in a thrift store. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, June 15th. Florida set a new record Saturday when the state health department reported more than 2,000 new cases of COVID-19. Then on Sunday, we topped 2K all over again. There have now been more than 75,000 cases in Florida, and that is the official number. Remember Rebecca Jones, the health department analyst who was fired after she said the state was suppressing the count? Well, she has created her own COVID-19 dashboard, and using public data from the state, she calculates the actual number of cases is almost 84,000. That's 12% more than the state admits. They do agree on one number, though. COVID-19 has killed at least 3,022 people in Florida. When Ron DeSantis was asked if that spike in COVID cases was a result of reopening the state too soon, the governor responded with a five-minute soliloquy in which he blamed it on increased testing and on newly discovered clusters among farm workers, prison inmates, and residents of long-term care. So what you're seeing is, uh, well, I think the number one outbreak we've seen is in the agriculture communities. You're seeing there was just a, a big case dump uh, in north-central Florida. There was a watermelon farm. You've had farm communities in Collier, Palm Beach, Martin, Levy, Hendry. And what happens is these are workers that are working close together. Once one gets it, it tends to spread very rapidly uh, throughout those areas. Now, there have been mitigation strategies that are in place to do it. The good thing about that is these are people in low-risk groups, so you have almost none of them end up hospitalized. The fear would be is if they're in multi-generational housing and maybe have contact with the senior citizen uh, or if they're going out into town. We're also concerned about a lot of these farm workers. This is about the time of year they start to leave to go to other states. So we're talking with some of the other states to let them know. We also have our Department of Health is working with our, agri our growers uh, to mitigate um, any of the spread. But if you look at the state of Florida and the percent positivity, by county, the all counties that are 10%, and we don't have any, I think, that are above 15, but the 10 to 15% counties is all because they either have agriculture outbreaks or prisons or both. And some of the rural counties, you know, the prisons, they'll have big, uh, big time population uh, will test positive. So we made a decision about three weeks ago with the Department of Health to have all the local county uh, health go into these communities and test, test, test. So you're seeing par part of it is that. Another part of it is 
we're now almost finished testing all staff and residents of long-term care facilities. Uh, if you look, the average member of the public goes and gets tested, and you have 95 to 98 percent test negative. In those long-term care facilities, the residents test positive uh, at about 8 percent. So that's a higher positive, not a huge positivity. I mean, certainly uh, anything under 10 is, is considered, considered good, and particularly that high-risk environment. But you do see that. So we should be having all those tests done, all those re remaining uh, results reported, hopefully over the next few days. And so that will also be um, another thing. But that has absolutely been a big factor in what we've seen over the last couple weeks because those are the most... Um, uh, 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 difficult areas. But I think that's the right thing to do, to go into the areas where we know you're more likely to see outbreaks, isolate those outbreaks so that it's not spreading beyond um, in there. And then what you also have now, too, CVS. All these places, you can now go get tests. And so I think what we're seeing is, of the people that are testing positive, way more are in the 25 to 45 than was happening two months ago. Well, those 25 to 45-year-olds, the clinical consequences of them testing positive is usually very, very modest um, because they're not in the high-risk groups. But I think you have businesses that are really working to get their employees tested. And for example, if you're working at a restaurant and you get tested and you're positive, then you're isolated. So that, that's a good thing because it prevents that from being able to be spread. Now, these are people who, by and large, do not have any symptoms. So they're being told as a precautionary measure uh, to test. So we're going to continue going. Um, you know, we'll be at 30,000, roughly, test results a day um, for the foreseeable future. You know, if you remember, about a month ago, I was imploring people to get tested because we just weren't having enough people show up. Um, and I think part of it is that the businesses have wanted more people to go in, and then obviously we've done a lot more with the agriculture community. But I do think you're starting to see uh, more people in the public that are interested in getting tested. So that is a good thing to be doing. Um, and we, but I don't think, I mean, I've, you know, you look at the numbers, you gotta look at the clinical consequences. And we know at now with the data, overwhelmingly, that the clinical consequences are almost entirely borne by the people that are 65 and older. Not entirely, but if you look, 85% of the COVID-related fatalities in Florida are age 65 and above, and we've actually had more COVID-related fatalities age 90 and above than we've had age 65 and below. So if you're seeing an area where you have positive cases and they're in that younger demographic, um, probably not as significant clinically it is significant to make sure that they're isolated and then they're not interacting with seniors and particularly, obviously, at a nursing home or a long-term care facility. The governor also insists he is not concerned about a new outbreak in August when tens of thousands of GOP loyalists will gather for the Republican convention in Jacksonville and a speech for Donald Trump. DeSantis says the Black Lives Matter demonstrations have already shown that large groups can gather without creating new clusters of COVID-19. Well, we'll see. I mean, that's a, that's a couple months away. Um, Duval County, uh, you know, their hospitalizations are down 50% uh, since May 24th for COVID-related, uh, uh, which obviously is a good sign. They've had a relatively minor um, outbreak compared to other parts of the country. Uh, but I know they're all working on that. I know they're going to be talking with local government, local health officials, all this, um, and, and, and they're going to be able to, uh, to work it out. I would remind people that we just were through an era, a two-week period, 
where you had tens of thousands of people gathering in very close proximity, uh, Hollywood, California, New York, all these places. Um, there is not yet evidence that I'm aware of that that has sparked any type of significant outbreaks. We have our health folks looking to see if we see anything in Florida. I think the places that had the biggest um, demonstrations were Orlando and Tampa, so they are looking at that. But as of now, you have not seen evidence that that has really led to any type of thing. In fact, in Florida, we're seeing it's the, 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 the close, lengthy contact in the workplace, like in the agriculture, uh, that's, really, um, that's really driving it, or in, or in long-term care facilities. So, but I think that's going to be something that people are going to need to continue to look at. If we're now another week out, and you don't see any outbreaks in any of those places, well, that's a signal to me that some of these outdoor events uh, would likely be would likely be okay if you had some some basic precautions. The governor was speaking in Miami, where he signed a bill approved during the 2020 session that allows college athletes to cash in on their fame. No salaries or anything like that, but starting next year, they can be compensated for the use of their name, image, or likeness without losing their athletic scholarship and their amateur status. Representative Chip Lamarca of Lighthouse Point says the NCAA makes a fortune off college athletes and gives them nothing. While so many people profited off their talents, these young students were left behind an athletic system, quite honestly, that's centered on greed. Wearing a school's jersey should not mean choosing between your talent and earning money to support your education and your family. Now more than ever, as we've seen, students have the, must have the flexibility to continue their education, provide for themselves and their families. Every one of the nearly half million student athletes across the United States of America should be able to earn from their talent. And if the third largest state in the United States can do it, then so can the collegiate athlete organization. Jonathan Vilma played on the University of Miami and spent 10 years in the NFL. He says Florida's new law is a game changer for college athletes. We, when I say we, I still refer to myself as a student athlete. We watched as other people were profiting and making money and we enjoyed, one, playing to getting our education, and then for some of us that were lucky enough to go on to uh, professional sports, whether it was basketball or football, you know, we were fortunate of where we started and receiving our scholarship, but at the same time, we still understood the economics of what we did and, and how much we produced financially for the university, for college sports in general. And we had always felt that there was going to come a tipping point for the student athletes to finally come together and say enough is enough when it, in regards to financing and being compensated for your image and likeness. We're not trying to accomplish uh, boosters, meddling in with college sports and college athletes, agents getting paid, and everyone now starting to ruin the game of college sports because of its purity. That's why we love college sports. We did that, and not only did Governor DeSantis do that, he then took it a step further and said, we're going to enact this in 2021. And that puts a lot of pressure on the NCAA because, frankly, that has been the crux of everyone's issue right now is the NCAA kind of sitting back. We're talking 30 years now where players have, have whispered about it, they've rumbled about it, they've said, hey, how come we're not getting paid NCAA like status quo? And unfortunately for them, the time has come. And fortunately for us, we have a governor and Governor DeSantis that said, we're going to push the agenda and we're going to push it immediately, uh, forcing the NCAA to act. Corey Simon spent eight years in the NFL after graduating from Florida State, and he says most people do not understand the sacrifices athletes make in college. I want you all to take a look, and those that are out there, to take a look at this from the player perspective. Uh, and not just the player, but the student athlete. Because a lot of kids, and you can ask them all, a lot of kids sacrifice 
to come to college as student athletes because many of them were working, bringing money in the home, and the parents said, listen, you have to go get this education. You have to go live your dream. But they still left behind a burden that they deal with every single day. They're not only trying to feed themselves, but they're trying to send money home and help their families. And I think we get caught up in the moment where we start to look at athletes as we're just robots and we're out there just playing a game for everybody's enjoyment. But once we leave that court, once we leave that field, there's still a responsibility that we have to our communities, to our homes, that we have to carry. And so what this does is this now allows those athletes to go in and, and, and be creative. Listen, it's not just about football. It's not just about basketball. We had a young lady that played soccer at Florida State University, and she had 500,000 followers on, on Twitter and, and Instagram. She should be able to monetize that. She should be able to take advantage of that. Some of these players that come in, you know, it, it's, it's that old adage, strike while the iron's hot. Well, for some of them, it will never be as hot as it is when they step foot on a college campus. And so if we're sending these players into these campuses and we're saying, okay, well, you go to class and you, you study real hard and to get a good job, but we don't tell that to all of the other folks that are out there that are just students and they can go and make money while they're in college, then we're cheating these student athletes. Governor DeSantis played college baseball in his younger days and was an early supporter of the new law. Sure, you can talk all you want about fairness or free enterprise, but the governor also sees this as a way to recruit top athletes. Florida is, is leading on this, and uh, if you're a blue-chip high school recruit out there thinking about where you want to go, uh, one of our Florida schools I think is a great landing spot for anywhere in the country, but particularly for all our great uh, Florida high school players, uh, stay in state. Uh, I don't want to see people going to Alabama and Clemson. And, you know, I know they've got good programs, but I think there's nothing better than, uh, than winning a national championship in your home state. So maybe this will be added enticement. We'll see what happens. Florida's new law takes effect July 1st, 2021. That delay is intended to pressure the NCAA to implement similar changes nationwide. When asked about the law, the NCAA had no comment. Next up on the Sunrise Soapbox, you'll hear from Nikki Freed, the unofficial leader of Florida Democrats. She has some advice for white people trying to come to grips with the fundamental grievances behind the Black Lives Matter protests. You are listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local healthcare provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org/covid for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. Agriculture and Consumer Services Commissioner Nikki Freed is the only Democrat holding statewide office in Florida, which makes her the unofficial leader of her party. Republicans run state government, so she doesn't have your proverbial bully pulpit, but she does have a soapbox and is not afraid to use it. For everyone out there trying to understand the outrage that inspired the Black Lives Matter movement, Freed says you need to study the history and then listen to the grievances of the people who are marching. You know, that the systemic built-in racial divide 
uh, has happened since you know slaves were first brought here from from Africa. And every step along the way, um, and this is from both parties. Both parties have messed this up. You know that you can't say that in, in history that the Democrats have always been on the right side of this. I mean, we know that unfortunately, and Democrats all, along the way were the ones who proposed the three strikes and you're out rules, increased um, the amount of, of time of sentencing, um, you know, increased the, the the building of our jails. So we really, as a country, need to start looking at how we start reprioritizing. You know, I get very frustrated that I see that a, a trillion dollars a single month is being printed right now and it's being distributed to the top one percenters of our country, of our corporations. That Treasury has half a trillion dollars that they're handing out to corporations. Can you imagine if just a fraction of those dollars would have been put into communities for education, for building a, of hospitals, building of food stores, of really trying to you know, incentivize corporations to, to come into those communities and to, to have headquarters there, there to have job growth. You know, such an opportunity that has been missed right now. Uh, and we, we see every day the stock market still going higher and higher, where we have 25% of our country that is unemployed. There shows that there's a break in the system. And then until we start having these real conversations and start to really reprioritize where we are putting our efforts and our energy, and it's not building more jails, it's trying to prevent people from going to jail and stopping the, the, the criminal cycle that's going right from the, the communities right into the jail systems. I mean, as a past public defender, I heard the, the, the cries of my clients saying, I might as well stay here in jail because I go out, I, I can't find a job, I can't get housing, I can't you know, get a mortgage, I can't rent uh, cars. And, and so they're stuck in this cycle that we can't get them out of until we start having these real conversations and part of it starts with us. Part of it is looking at Amendment 4. Part of it's at clemency. But it's the bigger picture that we need to start having these conversations about and the priorities of our society and where we are taking our resources and what are we doing with them. As we talk about, you know, expanding our economy and how great, you know, Space Coast and all these things are for the economy, that's great. If we're using the, that money that's now brought into our economy for the greater good. And, and that is not what is happening today. We, we are funding more and more of our, our charter schools, uh, which is resegregating our, our country. Uh, and until we start having those conversations and reprioritizing, we're not gonna make strides forward. And uh, I, I get it and I'm in this fight and um, I just, you know, I, I just, I'm angry too. And, and want to be part of the conversation um, to move the ball forward and make real change in our country. After Commissioner Freed spoke her piece, State Senator Bobby DeBose of Fort Lauderdale said other white people who support Black Lives Matter also need to speak up. One of the, the things that we, we really need to see and hear is our white allies having these conversations because we have them every day in the black community. You know, I'm really excited to hear folks embraced Black Lives Matter. Um, there was a time when folks would be uncomfortable with that. Um, but, you know, Black Lives is an equation um, to, you know, this country we live in. So again, I just want to encourage more of our white allies to have that conversation so we have those real bold conversations and talk about these things. We're, we're not going to move forward. 
Next up on your calendar of events, well, the Physicians for Social Responsibility is holding a press conference outside the governor's mansion at 11. They're urging him to issue an executive order requiring the use of face coverings in public places. The Visit Florida Executive Committee holds a teleconference at 1. The Seminole State College of Florida Board of Trustees meets online at 2. The Tallahassee Community College Board of Trustees meets online at 2.30. The Board of Speech, Language, Pathology, and Audiology meets in a conference call at 3. The South Florida Water Management District holds an online forum about recreational issues at 5. And Howard Simon, the retired director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Florida, speaks to Lee County Democrats in a Zoom conference at 7. Finally today, let's check in with Florida man and his occasional arch enemy, Florida woman. A Florida man and a Florida woman have been arrested after a brawl at a Goodwill thrift store. 29-year-old Janet Lee Sims of Clearwater and 50-year-old Paul Edward Turner of Tampa are both charged with simple battery. An incident report says the fight was all about the floor directions on the store due to COVID-19 at the Goodwill Superstore in Clearwater. The whole thing was captured on video. And a Florida man is charged with more than a dozen felonies after a bizarre crime spree that sounds more like a game of Grand Theft Auto. Deputies were called to a Pensacola flea market where witnesses said 23-year-old LaHorace Pickett Jr. jumped on a coin machine while kicking and punching it. He fell to the ground, exposed himself, and then screamed, Call the cops! The dead are rising! Then he jumped on a customer's shoulder, attacked an employee before being chased into the parking lot where he stripped naked, stole a vehicle, leaving behind his clothing and a pistol. A short time later, Pickett drove up to an elderly woman, grabbed her hair, and tried to kiss her before picking up a piece of concrete and threatening to kill her. He also threw a brick in a man nearby. When deputies arrived, they say they found Pickett in the bed of a truck along with a backpack containing ammunition, marijuana, and a ninja-type throwing star. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.